Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome back from your weekends. Uh, We are going to focus maybe a little bit more totally today on the political situation, if it's even correct anymore to call it anything as simple and restrictive as a political situation. In fact, I think one of our guests will uh, convincingly argue that it's a set of moral and philosophical questions as well. And I should say, uh, in the second half of the show today, we'll have John Harris from Politico. He's one of the founders of Politico and been a regular uh, on the show for the last year or so. Uh, Before I bring the first guest aboard, um, let's just remind you of the news uh, of the weekend. Uh, So this uh, is President Trump and some of his representatives on a phone call to the Secretary of State of Georgia. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about this to death, but it's just worth uh, making sure you've heard the voice at least once. Uh, Here's what it sounded like. Mr. President, you have people that submit information and we have our people that submit information and then it comes before the court and the court then has to make a determination. We have to stand by our numbers. We believe our numbers are right. Well, under law, you're not allowed to give faulty election results, okay? You're not allowed to do that and that's what you've done. This is a faulty election result. And honestly, this should go very fast. You should meet tomorrow because you have a big election election coming up and because of what you've done to the president, you know, the people of, of uh, Georgia know that this was a scam. And because of what you've done to the president, a lot of people aren't going out to vote. And a lot of Republicans are going to vote negative because they hate what you did to the president. Okay? They hate it. And they're going to vote. And if you would be respected, if really respected, if this thing could be straightened out before the election. You have a big election coming up on Tuesday. All right. So that went on for an hour. And actually, one of the things that I find most horrifying about it is that anybody can talk on the phone for an hour. I can't. Um, But uh, that was an hour of haranguing um, borderline extortion threats uh, and bizarre claims, most of which have been refuted in a series of court cases. Joining us now, though, to talk about the kind of the larger picture is I I really do think that this is one of the people who's been able to write about this in a unique and effective way, uh, maybe even invoking something greater than some of the narrow political questions we tend to consider. Peter Weiner, a senior fellow at Ethics and Policy Center and contributing writer at The Atlantic and The New York Times. He's the author of The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. He served in three previous Republican administrations. Uh, welcome to our show, Peter Weiner. Thanks for having me on, Colin. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes. Well, I mean, I really have been enjoying your work a lot, as I said before we, we went on the air here. But um I guess maybe we do need to begin with this phone call. It, it, it you know, in, in many respects, um, there's a way that you've written about in the past where uh, Donald Trump's followers, we sometimes sort of wonder, why is there no breaking point? Why is there no tipping point? Why doesn't X, Y, or Z cause mass defections away uh, from President Trump, both at the level of the political class and just the people who might have supported him in 2016? One of the arguments that you've made that's a really interesting one is that people tend to double down on their convictions when those convic- convictions are threatened by new sets of facts. In other words, people don't want to hear that they're wrong. They don't want to believe that they're wrong. And and 
first of all, I think there's a great argument. This feels like another one of those moments where you can sort of say, well, okay, this is a breaking point. This is something new. This sounds like the Nixon tapes or something. Um, first of all, do you, do you think this is any kind of new tipping point? The fact that there's this one hour conversation available for everyone to hear? You know, I do think that later in the week when this uh, effort that was catalyzed by Josh Hawley not to seat Joe Biden, not to recognize him and, and the, as president in the Electoral College findings, um, that actually may be an inflection point in terms of Trump and the Republican Party, because as horrifying as it is that probably a majority of House Republicans are going to support what's essentially a de, what's a de facto coup effort to overturn the election and maybe 10 or a dozen Republican senators. Um, a lot of Republican senators, a majority of Republican senators are actually going to vote to seat Biden and to acknowledge the Electoral College, despite these ferocious attacks by by Trump. Um, so that's a minor good sign. It's it's depressing that it would take something like this to get a few Republicans to speak up and only really because Trump is is on the way out uh, the, the, the door. I just want to say uh, one other thing about the or two other things about this phone call that happened with with uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, who himself is an honorable and impressive figure because he held shape. He didn't bend and break like so many Republicans have done during the Trump era. The first thing is that the premise of the call itself is delusional. I mean, we've gone through courts have uh, relitigated the findings in Georgia. Uh, there have been recounts. There's no evidence of fraud anywhere. Um, and yet, Trump continued to push in this call, if you listen to it, as if that were a given fact. And that, I think, is one of the real dangers of Trump and, and, and the Trump presidency, which is that it's been a full-scale all-out assault on reality. And his, uh, his followers, his supporters, have entered a fantasy world, a fantasy land, uh, where, where uh, their lives and our political lives are detached from reality. And that's a very, very bad place to be. The other thing is uh, that this was so quintessential Trump, the, the, the pressure, the intimidation tactics, uh, the efforts to seduce, uh, to impress, to appeal to power. Um, he really laid it on uh, the Georgia Secretary of State. And as I said, uh, I'm glad that the Secretary of State uh, was held shape, um, and I'm glad that they had a recording of it. I'm going to invoke the uh, quote that's fre frequently ascribed to Edmund Burke. I don't really know whether he said it. A lot of things are ascribed to Edmund Burke that he never said. But th that whole idea that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, good people, we would say now these days. Right. And it does seem as though we're seeing that. In fact, there are kind of three levels of this, right? You One could, a la Romney and Sass, you know, really articulate what the civic and moral problem is with what's happening, um, or one could do nothing, or one could actively aid <laughs> and abet uh, what's happening right now. And, and it seems as though most Republicans are one of the, in one of those two latter categories, doing nothing or, or actually actively helping him. Uh, it, it seems as though there's an awful lot, uh, there's not a lot of people like Romney and Sass who are willing to go in the other direction. How do you explain that? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a nice formulation, uh, and and the categories I think work work pretty pretty well. And I, I must say, I would put Mitt Romney in a different and higher category than than Ben Sass um, as well, because Romney has really been there at every moment, including impeachment. He voted to impeach uh, Trump when the evidence was overwhelming that it, Trump had abused power and that he obstructed. Uh, justice and Sass didn't do that. And uh, when when Sass was facing a primary challenge, he went so to Voce for for a fair period of time, uh, not to upset Trump. Um, now, having said that, I'm glad that that Ben Sass is is speaking out, and he's an elegant voice, and he's certainly a, a smart smart person. But um, it's been it's been a small, lonely island in terms of. Republicans at the at the federal and national level who have stood up to Trump and most especially the House of Representatives or, or the uh, or the Senate. There have been examples of governors like Larry Hogan of Maryland uh, and others who who have done it, um, and it's been quite dispiriting. Um, not shocking because uh, we're in such a polarized country and political tribalism. That is the sense of identifying with your own tribe. And really hating the other tribe is so deeply ingrained now in American politics. This is where it, where it, can, uh, it can lead. And you know, John F. Kennedy uh, said after his book Profiles in Courage came out that there's a reason that it was a short volume uh, because courage is a rare quality. Um, most people think they're more courageous than they are, but when the tests come, People often find ways to act in a manner that's not courageous and even is dishonorable and then justifies what happens. Um, look, I think I was on a call recently with a high-ranking Republican uh, who, in explaining this phenomenon of Republican, almost un unyielding Republican support for, for, for Trump and certainly not a willingness to take him on. And this individual uh, attributed it to two things. Uh, fear was one and ambition was the other with fear being the mo most dominant. The fear comes from the fact that Donald Trump is wildly popular with the base of the Republican Party. And uh, if he decides to target you, go after you, tweet against you, there's a whole army that will follow him. And you know, members of Congress are ambitious. They, want to, they, they like their jobs. They like the power. They like the perks. They like doing what they think is, 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 is helping the country. And the threat of a primary challenge is enough to, to scare a lot of them off. And then there are others like uh, Ted Cruz, who has this vaulting and I think uh, pernicious um, ambition. So he's so driven to climb the ladder that he'll do pretty much anything as it relates to Trump to get him there. So we've seen Cruz, I mean, remember the context here. During the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump mocked Ted Cruz's wife for her appearance and linked his father to the assassination of JFK. I was going to mention those things. Yeah. So that's, that's at the beginning. And now fast forward to the end. Where is Ted Cruz? He's volunteering, basically begging to be chosen by Trump to represent Trump before the Supreme court to try and argue uh, an insane lawsuit by the state of Texas which never had a chance of going to the court anyway. They threw, threw it out in, in the blink of an eye. And now Cruz is saying that they're going to challenge the Electoral College findings. So this is a kind of obsequiousness 
that's discouraging to see and, and unpleasant to to watch, but you've seen it with a lot of them. So I think that combination of fear and ambition together led these Republicans to go silent. The other thing, Colin, and, and I know this from conversations with uh, Republicans early on, which is, I, and I think it was almost willful blindness, but in any event, they made a miscalculation. I think that they thought that they could contain and control Trump, that he might grow in office, that the tendencies that were problematic that he showed during the campaign uh, would be mitigated um, once he once he got into into the presidency. I thought that was that was uh, a foolish thing to believe, um, because I think if anybody who who understood the psychological condition of Donald Trump had to have known that where we are now was almost inevitable, that he would go places down dark alleyways and they would go with him, it turned out. They decided to, to hitch their wagon to him. And once they made that connection, that psychological attachment to Trump, which is we're going to um, stay with him, we're going to support him, they began to justify every transgression uh, ethical, moral, legal, and otherwise. But I don't think that they ever envisioned that Trump would would fall as low as he has or that they would follow him there. Right. I mean, I think it's one thing to put a saddle on a fire-breathing dragon. It's another thing to actually ride the dragon. And I think they've had trouble doing that. But I want to just explore a little bit everything that you just said, because it's it's kind of layered uh, in, in like a, like Philo Dao. And because at the beginning of it, you talked about tribalism. And on the other hand, really what you just laid out there has more to do with fear of the cons, at least at the level of, say, senators and members of Congress, um, fear at the political consequences uh, of breaking uh, with Trump and therefore with his base, that they have lots of ways of doling out punishment. So I guess I, what, I'm, what I want to ask you is, is some of the tribalism that we see, at least in D.C., kind of WWE tribalism? I have to act like I'm like I hate the other side and I'll do anything to destroy them and, and anything to to get uh, to our goals. How much of it is sort of just that kind of pretense? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say that to link the tribalism and the fear, I would say that the tribalism problem is mainly located not among lawmakers, although some of that exists, but primarily among the base of the party. And in this tribalism, there's something that social scientists re, uh, refer to as affective polarization. What they mean by that is the polarization that we see today is defined not by affinity, loyalty for your own side, as much as hatred and fear of the other side. So that's really the, the glue that binds people to one another. That's why on the, on the right, if you, the, the term of art is uh, own the libs. If you do something that irritates liberals, that in and of itself uh, is judged to be a good thing to do. And the more you irritate them, the better it, the better it is. And Donald Trump is a master at that. So I think uh, on the base, I, uh, I think it's hard to overstate the degree of antipathy for liberalism, frustrations, a sense of being dishonored and disrespected by the elite culture over, over the years, some of which is warranted. I think it's, it's, it's a vast overreaction. But there's no question that people on the right have been looked down on by a lot of people, I would say, in, in, in culturally elite positions. And there are a lot of other factors that I think are playing into this. Demographic changes, race, unfortunately, uh, 
economic stagnation during much of this of this century, sense of displacement, alienation, and loneliness. So there's a kind of talk at witch's brew of, of things that are out there. But I think one of the ways it manifests itself is this view, uh, this tribalistic view, which you really see manifest in the right-wing media ecosystem, right? Talk radio, Fox News, OANN, Newsmax, and so forth, where there's just this coursing hatred for, for the left. That, I think, is driving a lot of the base. And the politicians are, you know, they, they react like seismographs. They are very attuned to what's going on. They don't want to make their life miserable. And so they reflect those negative, angry emotions and how they act. Now, some of them are like that in any event. I mean, Jim Jordan, uh, Mark Meadows is now the chief of staff, Louis Gohmert. Those kind of people would be, would be doing this. Uh, but I think there are a lot of elected representatives. I mean, I know some of them. I've spoken to them. And I know other people who have, too, that if they were freed of the pressures of the base in this respect, they would act in a very different way. Uh, and our politics would be more decent and, and more civil. And that's where the fear comes in, because these elected representatives, even though they may know better, are afraid that if Trump, it's not just that Trump attacks them, it's, it's what Trump the, or the army that, that, would, uh, that would follow what Trump wants. Um, uh, Peter Weider, time is fleeting and you're uh, much in demand today, but I do want to just sort of come back to that idea. And I'm going to read your own words back to you. But first, I'll read your quote from Wordsworth uh, a few articles ago in The Atlantic. What we have loved, others will love and we will teach them how. And then you write, there are still things worthy of our love. Honor, decency, courage, beauty and truth, tenderness, human empathy and a sense of duty, a good society and a commitment to human dignity. We need to teach others in our individual relationships, uh, in our classrooms and communities, in our book clubs and Bible studies and innumerable other settings why these things are worthy of their attention, their loyalty, uh, their love. You know, few people, um, I can't really think of anybody actually, have written so perfectly, I think, about that question, that Somehow or other, we have to substitute another set of values, the ones that you describe so perfectly there for what's on display right now. Maybe you could say a little bit more before we're, before you go. I mean, look, Trump is going to get out of our faces at some point. Uh, right. Presumably, it's January 19th. He'll be in Scotland or something, if you believe the latest rumors. But at some point, we're not going to have to deal with him anymore. And we're going to have to piece together some of these shattered elements of civic society. So... Maybe you can say just a little bit more about, first of all, whether you think that can happen and how long it might take. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your kind words. I, I think it can happen. Of course, it's a question of whether it, it, it will happen. I'd say a couple of things in response. One is that it's important to bear in mind that Joe Biden won this election and won it fairly easily, won by 7 million votes. The Electoral College wasn't, wasn't close. He won by 15 million more votes than Hillary Clinton did four, four years ago. And that told us something. I mean, Joe Biden was not a, a, a you know once in a lifetime generational talent like Barack Obama was, um, but he won, and he won because I think he understood the theory of the case during the campaign, which was his. Uh, he kept coming back to the phrase to restore the soul of America, and that he was he would he would bind up the wounds, and that he would he was a uniter, not a divider, and that resonated with people, which was an indication. Uh, there's a so-called exhausted majority. Uh, various studies have have used that phrase, and they weren't, but they weren't so exhausted that they gave up on politics or on our country. They actually rose up and 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 spoke out and voted. So I think that that's good. You know, 
I said long before the pandemic hit us, I used an analogy where I said sometimes viruses create their own antibodies. And sometimes in the life of an individual and in the life of a nation, you begin to take for granted certain virtues, certain qualities like honor, decency, uh, honesty, integrity. But when they're stripped away from you or stripped away from your country, and you begin to see what that world looks like, how barren it is, how harsh it is, um, and how dark it can be, then you begin to understand why those things matter to begin with, and you might be willing to fight for them and, and identify with them and even embody them in ways that, that one didn't, didn't before. Um, and this is a self-governing country. I mean, it's up to us to write the new chapters in the American story. Um, so you know, fatalism and cynicism are not right. They're, they're destructive, um, I think, attitudes for one thing, but I don't think they're right. It really is up, is up to us. Now, the, the environment is, is supercharged for sure, but this country has had worse periods than this one. Uh, you know, if you go to the founding of the country, the you know, election in 1800, the first true election in this country between Adams and, and Jefferson, that, was, that almost tore the, the young republic apart. You had periods of yellow journalism. Uh, you had, of course, the Civil War. You had the late 60s uh, when you had the Vietnam War, the race uh, protests. Um, King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. The, the Chicago Convention in, for the Democrats. I mean, on and on. Uh, Kent State, finally, in the early 70s with Watergate. So this country's endured a lot and, and, and come back from a lot. But we have, we have to figure out what we want to be and what we want to represent. Uh, we also need leadership. I mean, this is both bottom up and top down. And we need leaders to step forward, visionary leaders, courageous leaders, to give voice to the good in human nature um, and, you know, to lead us to broader, more sunlit um, uplands. Um, that can happen. It's not predestined to happen, but it can happen. And it begins in our everyday lives. And I'm sure you, you've had these conversations and, and, you know, this is a tense time. I was on the phone the other day with somebody who you know, was saying a story, which I'm guessing you've heard from many of your callers and maybe you've experienced in your own life, which is families where there are tensions because of politics, or they've just decided we're not going to talk about politics, that an awful lot of it on an individual level is listening to other people, trying to listen to their, not just hearing them and then preparing to respond to their arguments, but trying to understand where they're coming from. What's their life experience? Why do they believe what they believe? And find out more about their stories. I think when that happens for them, and it happens for me, um, that lets the guard down and the connections become more human and you don't feel this impulse to debate someone in order to destroy them. And you don't feel like your, your own identity is, is necessarily attached to uh, your political identity or to a political argument. I think a lot of that is, uh, honestly, Colin, what's going on is the intensity of our politics is beyond what it should be. And I think part of the reason is that a lot of these political debates and, and now these elections go to something very core to people. And so they feel like when their political views or, their, or the candidates or the, the politicians that they support are under attack, they feel like they are under attack. And that will often um, trigger a whole series of negative emotions. And we have to find ways to, to, to first to name that and then to, to find ways to uh, cultivate uh, reactions that are more positive and more hopeful. 
All right. I think somebody just did give voice to some of those values. Uh, that would be Peter Weiner, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Policy uh, pu- and Public Policy Center and a contributing writer at The Atlantic, The New York Times, the author of The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump, served in three previous Republican administrations. Thank you for your time on a busy day, Peter Weiner. I enjoyed being with you. Thanks so much. Satisfaction. Guarantee. I decided to play this today because uh, reading uh, our guest, John Harris, the co-founder of Politico and the author of The Survivor, Bill Clinton in the White House, uh, he writes the Altitude column for Politico, where I read that he grew up in western New York. But I mean, more appropriately or more significantly, uh, I read that in a column that was sort of a contemplation on the notion of American exceptionalism, the kind of sense that we have that America embodies a group of ideals uh, which uh, I think most people would agree right now are significantly imperiled. And uh, John Harris, we're going to get to your predictions or your, they're not predictions, they're more queries about the future of 2021. But I thought we might start with that column. You, you were kind of getting at an interesting question, which is that, you know, we so much of what we believe about America is kind of a distillation of reality into myth. Uh, and, and that some of our disappointments in the failure of that myth, they almost seem to fail to recognize that there's a lot of gritty realities sitting underneath that myth. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Colin, for, for reading that column. And uh, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Um, you know, that column I wrote, uh, I guess it was on the last day of 2020, and I was trying to reflect on um, what the year meant to me, and I was thinking uh, about myths, and the, to me, the the story of 2020 was the collision between the American myth and American reality. Uh, one place where I personally uh, experience a, a kind of mythology is in my adopted state of Minnesota. I'm actually from Western New York, as you say, 
from Rochester, but spent much of my life uh, uh, as a boy going to northern Minnesota, where my father was from. And in my college years, uh, I was in Northfield, Minnesota, uh, about 40 miles south of the Twin Cities. To me, Minnesota has a kind of a, a mythology. Uh, that is, uh, th there's a set of values that I associate with it. Very notable that uh, my Minnesota myth, uh, uh, and the kind of myth that even non-Minnesotans know about, uh, anyone that read Garrison Keillor and Lake Wobegon and the, the Prairie Home Com Companion knows what I'm talking about, that version of Minnesota, that's the version of myth. What about the Minnesota of reality? That is the place on a Minneapolis street corner where uh, Derek Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck. Uh, and uh, mayhem in the Twin Cities and around the country resulted uh, as people were outraged uh, uh, by the act, and I think at some profound level shaken by that uh, collision between how we like to think of ourselves as Americans and, and the reality as people live it. Um, uh, so anyway, that, that's what that column was about. Well, I, you know, I think I can make a nifty segue from that. Uh, to uh, the day you took over the Playbook uh, newsletter uh, for a day and sort of talked about 2021. And one of your questions was, can Joe Biden embody the presidency? There's a way in which, I mean, the only things that we had challenging uh, our, our ideas uh, about uh, the American myth uh, is a pandemic, uh, as you say, a tremendous uh, cascade uh, of warranted racial unrest. Uh, and... Well, now the an election <laughs> that never seems to resolve, an election that you know, all the things that we kind of seem to be pledging allegiance to in school as a kid, they just it doesn't all seem to be happening. So it's a pretty tall order for Joe Biden, right? He has to inhabit the office of the president in such a way as to reassure us that those things which shook us to the core uh, are now possible to shake off. So say more about that. Well, I uh, I wrote our morning playbook. Um, I was a guest author on New Year's Day, and editors said, hey, you know, why don't you make some predictions for 2021? I said, forget it. Uh, predictions are folly. Uh, imagine how off uh, somebody's predictions of 2020 would be unless they somehow uh, managed to predict the pandemic and everything that echoed from it. Uh, but I will say, I, I, I'll imagine that we had a crystal ball. And uh, that crystal ball could tell us about the future of Washington, the future of national politics in the, in the 12 months ahead. What would we ask it? That's one of my questions, Colin, is, uh, is whether Joe Biden can fill out the office of the presidency. It's a, an office of power. It's a political office, yes. Uh, but above all, it's a kind of a psychological office. Uh, that is, it, it, uh, um, uh, people look to the president uh, uh, to be a kind of... Uh, larger-than-life figure, and to, to stand not just for their, their particular agenda, but in some sense to, uh, to uh, stand for America. Now, that certainly was not true of President Trump. Uh, a number of people, even before he was elected, said, this person will never be uh, stand for my version of America. But it is true for most presidents that they, uh, they kind of inhabit a space. And even somebody like President Trump, who people were powerfully opposed to, he did, in one sense, fill the office. He is a capacious figure. Uh, um, he's a, a large personality, uh, um, for, for better or for worse, in, in my view. It's an unattractive leadership personality, but uh, but it's large. Joe Biden is a very life-size personality. He's the oldest person to ever become president. He'll be older on his first day than Ronald Reagan was on his last. Uh, and... Uh, 
you know, he didn't, um, uh, he, he, I can't think in American history or certainly not recent American history of a, a, a contrast between outsized challenges, uh, really daunting historical uh, burdens that he's going to be carrying uh, and a very life-size persona. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether he can grow into the office and be seen as uh, uh, have a leadership persona that's equal uh, to the to the moment. Yeah, you know, I, I, Peter Weiner in the pre, previous preceding segment was saying, you know, there's no way that Biden is kind of a one of those once in a generation political talents like Obama. But what he is, I think, is in a very good way, kind of old fashioned and connected to um, an old fashioned rhetoric about the country. And I mean, rhetoric probably alone won't fix what's wrong. But we've also had four years of such toxic rhetoric that you you do sort of wonder. I mean, maybe in all of the ways that he seems, you know, a, a little superannuated, he connects <laughs> to a past that's a, a little bit easier to stomach for everybody. I, I don't know if you had specific thoughts about that. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, uh, uh, that's uh, excellent use of superannuated, a good <laughs> SAT word for us. Um, and uh, I would say that I really agree with you. The most hopeful uh, appraisal that we can give of Joe Biden is that uh, um, he represents a kind of respect, um, respect for institutions and at some level, respect for individuals, uh, regardless of uh, uh, where they are politically or whether they voted for him. I, I think, uh, Colin, you and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, what Donald Trump represents is the politics of contempt. Uh, people vote for him. They may not admire him at uh, some sort of personal level, uh, that is his ethics or, or whatnot, but they do uh, align with and, and, and agree with um, his contempt for so many features of uh, American life, contempt for the Washington status quo, contempt for the media, contempt for people uh, who Trump supporters feel are looking down at them. Um, it is a politics that, uh, uh, that, that feeds on contempt and I, I think uh, amplifies contempt. Well, the opposite of contempt, of course, is, is respect. And uh, to me, that's the, 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 the thing that's really missing uh, so urgently from our politics right now is a uh, respect for institutions, respect for precedent, above all respect for each other as fellow citizens. I would add respect for the truth uh, uh, and a rejection of the idea that the truth is infinitely malleable I and mean, it can be whatever we want it to be. Um, any event, uh, and I think you could say that Biden is, uh, by virtue of his history, by virtue of his character, is uh, somebody that uh, can reflect that. Yeah, I think Biden speaks that language. Um, so uh, one of the things that you speculated about or kind of a question you opened up in that uh, uh, playbook column was sort of who becomes the face or faces of the Republican Party going forward. I mean, I, like so many people, keep clicking my ruby slippers together and saying Donald Trump will go home. Donald Trump will go home. He will not be around that much longer. Uh, I think that's true. Um, now, you've got sort of some differentiating that's going on right now. Josh Hawley, uh, of course, uh, attempting to take the lead along with Ted Cruz and kind of continuing the bizarre and baseless to use the most <laughs> frequently used word these days, baseless arguments about the election. You've got Tom Cotton, who, I mean, I, I don't think anybody questions that he's going to at least take a crack at 2024, doing the differentiation, sort of saying, well, yeah, no, I'm as disappointed as you are, but we are, we just can't open the door to this kind of stuff. So there's a sorting process that's beginning right now. Is anything jumping out to you about it? Um, 
You know, I the biggest question I have, Colin, is whether this will really work for these people who it seems obvious that's uh, uh, their uh, agenda is to lay claim to the group of Trump voters by seeming as contemptuous as uh, he is. Um, and, and so you've got uh, um, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz uh, 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 trying to do that, uh, embracing uh, President Trump's false uh, accusations about a fraudulent election. Um, uh, they seem to me unlikely uh, uh, leaders of an anti-establishment movement, uh, you know, products of Stanford uh, and uh, Yale Law, I think, in the case of Holly and uh, Princeton and, and either Harvard or Yale Law in the, in the case of Cruz. Uh, uh, of course, Tom Cotton, who, who, as you say, is not joining in in, uh, uh, in this bid to reject the Electoral College findings, but he himself is uh, um, uh, often kind of projects a, a sort of angry populism um, that, that to, at least to me, sits a little uncomfortably with his actual biography, which is, uh, uh, I think he's a Harvard kid and then went to Harvard Law. Um, uh, Anyway, yeah. for that matter, President Trump's Ivy League uh, way back, I think, went to Penn, but uh, was, a, 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 to me, a more authentic rejection of uh, uh, kind of establishment um, uh, values and, and, and was not somebody who organized his life around kind of climbing the establishment meritocratic ladder. He built his own ladder. Um, uh, whether these guys can pull that off. Uh, um, that's one of my questions for, um, for 2021. Right. It's possible as you speculate that the most logical heir to the Trump um, style of politics might be one of his kids, but we've got to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more John Harris right after the proverbial this. Despite our estrangement, I've got a small query for you. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? Oceans rise. Empires fall. It's much harder when it's all your call. All alone across the sea. All right. Um, today, the show, as usual, was uh, engineered in uh, studio produced by Kat Pastor. She's the one who makes it possible for us to uh, broadcast remotely. And uh, when I say us, I especially mean senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show, Betsy Kaplan, who also produced this episode. Uh, and so thanks to both of them. Uh, we're talking right now to John Harris, the co-founder of Politico, the author of The Survivor, Bill Clinton in the White House. He writes the Altitude column for Politico. Hey, John. Uh, this is a little off the topic that we were just on, but I feel like I, I, I want to ask somebody about this. Um, in the middle of all the craziness this weekend with a long Trump phone call to Georgia and stuff going on with COVID, there was also this statement that was put out by all 10 of the living former secretaries of defense, basically saying that the election was over and that Biden won. And it would be a terrible mistake to use the military to try to overturn the results of the election. And I, I just don't think, I mean, you sort of wonder why they felt the need to do that. That's the one thing they kind of haven't explained, right? Is 
I mean, I doubt they were just all like having coffee and said, you know what, let's put a statement out about that just in case. They, you, one feels like there's something else that we don't know that we should know. Well, it is uh, remarkable. Uh, it must reflect their appraisal that um, um, not necessarily that Trump was on the verge of, uh, of doing this, but a notion that uh, uh, would previously have been unthinkable and even unsayable. Well, uh, apparently people uh, were thinking and uh, saying, uh, uh, didn't um, Trump's... Uh, brief, uh, uh, briefly national security advisor who then won a, uh, won a pardon. General Flynn had talked about uh, the possibility of using the military to, um, um, uh, to conduct new elections. Um, uh, and I think the people involved in this must've said, look, uh, we have to uh, just be very clear, uh, how, uh, how unacceptable that notion is. And it was a, a bipartisan roster, all attend. Uh, living former defense secretaries, as I understand it. Well, Colin, one thing that's notable is I noticed uh, a former defense secretary, Bill Clinton, uh, excuse me, Bill Perry, who was uh, uh, head of the Pentagon in the Clinton years, uh, somebody I know pretty well. Uh, he, he said on Twitter that this idea actually came from uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney, uh, who, of course, had been George H.W. Bush's defense secretary. I thought that was notable. Um, because, of course, his daughter is a, a high-ranking member of the Republican caucus uh, uh, in, uh, in the House of Representatives. So, you know, uh, the notion that the Cheney family thought this was a serious threat uh, um, caught my attention. Yeah, I would say that when Dick Cheney says that a Republican power grab has gone too far, you know it's gone too far, <laughs> yes. you know, because uh, he, he's willing to pay out a lot of line on something like that, but he's all out of rope now. He's not going to do that uh, anymore. Hey, I, I want to use some of our time just to talk about, as you uh, wrote about in uh, that Politico playbook, um, you know, I mean, there are also interesting, interesting questions about who ultimately is the face of the Democratic Party. It's Joe Biden for today, tomorrow, next week. And, you know, God willing, you know, as long as he's uh, able to serve as president. But it's an unusual pairing between him and Kamala Harris. Uh, her most remarkable uh, and remarked upon moment of the primary season was a moment where she really took him on uh, very memorably. So maybe talk about how you see that relationship unfolding uh, in, in the you know years ahead. Well, Colin, as you know, historically, there's always been at least an undercurrent of tension between presidents and vice presidents or, or at a minimum, their staffs, uh, almost uh, almost never expressed as as a, a kind of public uh, tension between them. But usually in a Washington context, pretty easy to uh, come up with uh, to, to uh, discern jostling and competition and resentment. It's almost in the nature of the office of vice president's main uh, duty, of course, is to uh, be there if something happens uh, to the uh, to the president. And so it's not a relationship that's necessarily conducive to <laughs> creating a kind of warm feeling. Lyndon Johnson, when uh, he was John F. Kennedy's uh, vice president, he said he always uh, felt, quote, like a goddamn raven hovering over his shoulder. Uh, and 
I well, think there's I mean, plenty Reagan, of for a yeah. similar dynamic with yeah. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. I mean, Reagan and Bush had also a pretty uneasy relationship. And then when Bush got into office and talked about a kinder and gentler America, Nancy Reagan was said to have observed kinder and gentler than what? And what? And she was resentful of it. Yes. Yeah. So it, there's always that built in. Although you'd have to say Mike Pence has been a pretty good soldier. If he's brimming with resentments or certainly he's got to be brimming with moral and stylistic differences from his boss. Boy, we don't know a lot about them. Yeah. Uh, no, he's um, exceptionally disciplined in uh, uh, keeping that obscured. Uh, one assumes that he has them, but we don't know. And you don't pick up a lot of it from his staff either. Uh, you don't hear the, the kind of uh, drum beats of, of discontent. Um, I think he made a decision that uh, uh, early on that whatever qualms he had about uh, Donald Trump, they were going to stay between he and presumably his wife and no one else, and that he was prepared to uh, kind of pay the psychic price of, uh, of muffling uh, his own independent reaction, um, presumably for the benefit of, of someday uh, being better positioned to run for president himself. Right. He may he may need to, need to have his teeth uh, professionally unclenched. Well, you know, uh, by, like, uh, with, with uh, Vice President-elect Harris, uh, I, I think it's going to be incumbent upon her to not even whisper that she's uh, rooting for uh, Joe Biden to uh, only be a one-term president or that she's thinking more about positioning herself than she is serving the administration. She, she's, uh, 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 I, I think she's going to have an obligation to do that, even as uh, probably if you scratch the surface, uh, it might not be 100% true. Uh, uh, you know, nobody becomes a vice president without imagining uh, themselves in the office. Uh, yeah, but I, I think day. also, John, I have to wonder whether, you know, as vice president himself, Biden was kind of famously out over his skis more than you know, Jean-Claude Keeley, uh, and, and, you know, was the guy who would blurt something out about, you know, gay marriage or something like that. And you sort of wonder whether Harris's job going forward is to be the opposite of that, to sort of make sure that stuff stays inside an Overton window or that, you know, maybe gather up uh, any reckless thing Biden might have said on a given day or week and put it inside the bounds of what the administration really wants to have as acceptable discourse. You mean uh, sort of the role uh, often goes to the press secretary, what the president meant to say or, or what the president really said, even though you're misinterpreting um, uh, uh, that's possible. I probably uh, the biggest opportunity for her, um, if uh, uh, President Biden and and his uh, team of close advisors around him are willing to do it, is to give her a big and substantive assignment and say, "Look, you've got this account." Um, you know, President Obama did that uh, with the uh, uh, stimulus. Uh, roll out early in the administration. Biden was seen as, as the person in charge of that and overseeing it to make sure that the money was uh, w was spent strategically and, and spent well. Uh, and uh, th that was a, a considerable assignment and, and seemed Biden seemed to have carried it out well. Um, um, I think that would be, if uh, Vice President Harris were to get one of those, uh, that, that probably would be the most important thing to sort of burnishing her presidential aura. Uh, I think it's clear that if Biden does run uh, only one term, uh, there, there's not going to just be an automatic deference to her. There'll be plenty of people who say, uh, look, uh, uh, let's compete for a nomination. 
Well, that's it's interesting that you say that because certainly there was a big, you know, open field for the Democratic nomination last time. But, you know, the dynamic of this of older president, younger vice president, highly viable vice president who was a presidential contender in the previous cycle, that would kind of be uh, a coronation. You know, that typically would be kind of an obvious line of succession. Um, so you only have about a minute or so left. But what would you say is different this time? Well, I would say most times vice presidents don't just get a walk. Uh, George H.W. Bush, after serving Reagan, uh, uh, didn't get that. He had a vigorous uh, fight for the, the uh, nomination with Bob Dole in uh, 2000. Al Gore had to uh, mm-hmm. break a sweat to push back uh, uh, Senator Bill Bradley. Uh, um, you know, and nobody gets to the president, uh, the presidency in just in a walk. doesn't matter if you've been vice president or had any other position. Uh, you've got to break a sweat. All right. Uh, we should stop there. Um I covered a little of that Bradley campaign. I don't think Gore had to sweat that much. Uh, John Harris is the co-founder of Politico and the author, no disrespect to Bill Bradley, and the author of Survivor, uh, the Bill, Bill Clinton in the White House. He writes the Altitude column for Politico. We're always so happy when we get a little bit of his time on our show. John, thanks for being with us again. Colin, thanks so much. I hope we can talk again soon. Oh, I hope so, too. All right. So that's it for today. We got all kinds of stuff coming up this week, but I'm not going to talk about any of it. Just to be mean, just to be heartless just to deprive you of the knowledge you crave. So, Happy New Year. Let's watch the old year die With a fond goodbye And our hopes as high as a kite How can our love 